Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Welcome back to Still Watching, the television podcast from Vanity Fair. We cover entire seasons of the hottest shows on TV, and this week we are concluding our deep dive into House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones prequel series on HBO. I'm Josh Wiggler, and to discuss the House of the Dragon season one finale with me, it's Richard Lawson. Richard, what's with that look on your face right now? Oh, you know, um, I had a little oopsie up in the sky. <laughs> Just a little whoops. I think I think my, my mom might be mad at me. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. We're recapping episode 10, The Black Queen, uh, the season one finale of House of the Dragon. We're recording this a little later than we usually do. We watched this on Sunday night alongside all of you, except for the pirates, uh, whoever you are out there. Uh, so the podcast comes your way a little later than usual. We appreciate your patience. Richard, how are you doing with your House of the Dragon hangover this morning? Good, good. I'm eager for more and kind of sad that we won't get that until, I don't know, a year from now, maybe. Um, yeah. Because this was a, an episode that, you know, I think it's kind of traditional with Game of Thrones. Like, I was expecting maybe a little bit bigger, but I think also that was last episode, right? Like the really big stuff. Yeah, I think so. I think actually my my, my feeling on it is Game of Thrones will, would, would have typically given you a really big penultimate episode. And right. then the finale is kind of winding everything down and the premiere of the following season will sort of be winding everything up. There's kind of like these two slower episodes that are on the other side of the penultimate. That's the cadence that I'm used to with Westeros. This yeah. did feel really big to me. This felt like part two of a two-part finale. And it certainly ends with this moment that, as a book reader, I'd been really nervous about, been waiting for. But I think even if you hadn't read the book and you were just, you know, following the season all season long, and you know this is House of the Dragon, and you know two families with dragons are not exactly getting along, you're waiting for those dragons to turn on each other. Uh, and so we finally got that in this episode. And then we cut to black, basically. Right. You know, right. we are we are out at the end of this battle between Luke and Aemond, which goes terribly wrong. And it does feel like, OK, so I just get to watch the next episode next week. Right. And instead, it will probably be sometime in 2024. Yeah, I think it's you know, it's the the process of watching this season has been like, Okay, this is a show about Rhaenyra and Alicent. You know, I you you know that about Rhaenyra, but Alicent sort of you know more and more emerges, uh, you know, into the fore. Um, and I kind of had assumed that a lot of the kids, their a lot of their kids, would sort of be Tommen esque 
the net like we're aware of them or even or or, right. or this the sister whose name i forget um oh helena uh or yeah tom and sister the one who dies oh, on the boat marcella marcella yes. yes like you know they're around but they're not joffrey you know and then this episode in particular i mean in past episodes too are like no no the kids of course this is about like legacy like like family dynasty so like it's you your have kids to pay marty yeah. yeah exactly you have to pay attention to all these people and i had naively assumed when luke and his brother fly off for the little missions like that was a way of getting them out of the narrative and it's like no <laughs> it's 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 that they're gonna follow that or at least one half of that and i so yeah i had to do some readjustment in my head and and then at the end was uh, it's kind of sad actually yeah i mean no one wants to see poor luke get eaten off of a dragon that's horrible uh but you know it is game of thrones and we have seen bad things happen to the cast before certainly to the young members of the cast as well uh so there's some ways in which i think it's interesting because if you've been paying attention and if you watched eight seasons of this hbo franchise previous to this season you shouldn't be all that surprised that the war is eventually going to come for the next generation and yet, I think it is still just such a shocking moment. And I think that the way that the violence is conveyed, like the aftermath of it, with not just the holding steady on Ewan Mitchell as Aemond, but also watching Eric's, uh, Luke's dragon, not to be confused with Eric, uh, the, uh, the member of the Kingsguard, uh, right. but Eric's just like you know, falling from the sky in bits and pieces, uh, yeah. really sells it. So I thought it was really, really strongly conveyed. It was very, very brutally done. And I do think it's brutally done, both in the sense of what has happened literally on screen and also in the sense of, I can't believe you're leaving us here. How could you leave us here? I know, I know. Yeah. Uh, when, when we, when Rhaenyra all episode is like, let's be prudent. Let's, you know, let's not rush into anything. And then she's like, oh, fuck that. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, or at least we can assume that that's what she's thinking. Um, I think it also... Uh, before we get into like the real bit by bit part of the episode, like I, I think that the show has done a really good job of telling us how kind of arbitrary and and accidental a lot of this is. You know, like like we we th- from a distance you might seem like oh there's all this grand sort of planning and these titans kind of clashing against each other. And several instances in this season, we've been like it's just some kid making a mistake. It's just it's a misunderstanding. It's it's all feels so petty and yet the the results of it is very is going to be very serious yeah definitely so it's going to be very serious business moving forward alas we will be stopping the house of the dragon train here with episode 10 this week and then we'll be back at some point with house of the dragon in the future still watching we'll continue richard maybe you're going to give a tease about what the podcast looks like moving on from this week at the end of the show For now, we've got some dragons still to wrangle. We would still love your feedback if you want to send it in. Stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. That's stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We will get into the recap really quickly on the other side of this commercial break. Stay tuned. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. All right, Richard, let us march on. It is episode 10 of season one of House of the Dragon, The Black Queen, directed by Greg Yatanis. Written by co-showrunner, soon-to-be sole showrunner, Ryan Condal. 
the Black Queen. It begins on Dragonstone, and it does begin roughly where it ends uh, in the in the in the painted table near the painted table of Westeros, which gosh looked great in this episode. Yeah, I have to cool. say. I think that they should, uh, you know, maybe season two. I, I don't know if it's going to be a little too much like the original Game of Thrones opening credit sequence, but I think we should crawl over the painted table for season two. Maybe, maybe a hot take, but I think that they really nailed the look of this thing. Um, yeah, that's a really cool piece of production design. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I think it would it would really lend itself nicely, especially with the Game of Thrones theme is still there. Uh, Viserys is gone. His obsession with the old Valyria model is behind us. Let's let's move on. Uh, that would that would be my vote personally, but I don't really have a vote in this thing. Anyway, Luke is here, uh, and so we are beginning not only with war, but we are beginning with Luke as well. And it's it's really sad in hindsight, Richard, that when we're here with Luke and Rhaenyra comes in, he he is once again sort of focused on I don't want to be Lord of the Tides. I don't want the sea snake to die. Uh, I'm not, I'm not like him. I get, I get green sick when I'm out at sea, I believe is the word he uses, which is, oof, uh, pretty rough, uh, mm-hmm. in the rear view mirror of what happens to this poor boy. This poor kid. And, you know, and it's echoing this scene from earlier, uh, an earlier episode where he said, well, if I'm the Lord, then everyone's dead, and everyone's right? dead. Yep. you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, once again, this season has been about like the, the, what happens to these kids who were sort of, you know, it's not their choice to be born into any of this, uh, that it just keeps grinding up generation after generation. And I guess we probably should have known right from this opening scene that Luke was going to be a, a focus of the episode and be probably not going to fare very well. Sure. Uh, so he is, he is really, uh, he's, he's really upset about the state, uh, the state of things with his, with his grandfather and where this might fall for him and Rhaenyra is trying to tell him that, you know, I was scared when I was your age. I was 14 when I started to realize that I was going to have a very powerful role in things. And I would learn about it more as the, t- as the years went on. I would get more comfortable with this idea of wearing the crown. Um, and Luke says, I'm not like you, though, Mom. I'm not so perfect. Uh, she says, I'm anything but perfect. Uh, and it's it's sad because we're not going to get a lot more scenes of these two together. But just the affection that Emma Darcy portrays mm-hmm. toward Luke uh, really was very moving for me, especially knowing that this was going to be not a long thing coming. We see so little of it on yeah. on, on these shows like this. You know, a lot of times the parental relationships uh, with their kids are very like stern and, you know, we have to do this for the family. And this was a moment where, you know, Rhaenyra is able to just be kind of affectionate mom, you know, and. Um, to have that then be so ruined at the end. Uh, yeah, they, they did a good job of setting up the emotional stakes of this all, alongside the kind of practical, like, you know, matters at state. Uh, so this tender moment between mother and son is interrupted by the arrival of a different Targaryen. Princess Rhaenys has arrived from her short flight from King's Landing, uh, mm-hmm. and she comes with the double whammy of terrible news. She cuts right to the chase, Richard. She says, Viserys is dead, and what's more, Aegon has been crowned as his successor. This yeah. goes over poorly. Yeah, well, I mean, she's, she's dragon-legged, you know, from that flight, and so she's probably tired, and uh, I think she's just like... I, I just want to check into my yeah. room. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. The time change, you know, all that, so... <laughs> Yeah, I think it's I mean, the same time zone. I'm pretty sure. I think I'm pretty sure it is. We don't know how they work there. We don't know. It might um, be like an hour off. It might just be yeah. right on the cutoff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's she's, uh, you know, obviously emerged as a very uh, kind of grand character last episode. And so I'm glad that we at least got some of her um, reasserting that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So she shows up. She's still in her armor. She hasn't even changed. She just came right into the room to, to deliver the news. Um, and the news lands poorly. Uh, Damon is pretty ready to just, you know, turn on the nukes and hit, you know, hit the button. I don't know if that's how it works. It certainly seems that way in the movies. Uh, and he's he's ready to go to war. He's he's right on the edge of it. Um, Rhaenyra has other concerns at the moment. Um, when Rainy says the Greens are coming for you, Rhaenyra, you should leave Dragonstone at once. It's not exactly possible as Rhaenyra prematurely goes into labor and we mm-hmm. are left with yet another childbirth scene here in house of the dragon season one yeah i think maybe we've had that's they've done that enough <laughs> you know mm-hmm. our our introduction to the um the adult rainier was another birth scene with then her taking that long horrible walk up to the queen's chambers and yeah i mean i, I understand what they're trying to convey but um yeah it, this this one was especially obviously agonizing because of how it ended yeah, it ends very terribly. Um, so she is she's going to be dealing with that while Damon is going to be trying to shore up all of the soldiers and rally the troops for battle. Um, Jace is going to be summoned by Rhaenyra, uh, and Rhaenyra is going to tell both Jace and Luke what has happened, that the Greens have refused her succession, they've claimed the Iron Throne, and Aegon has been crowned king. And Jaceris uh, asks a reasonable question of like, well, where is Damon? Where's your husband in all this? Why is he not in this room with you? She has a great line, uh, Rainier, which is, I don't know. He's gone to madness. He's gone to plot his war. There's just a little bit of like an IDGAF uh, attitude yeah. about Rainier yeah. in this moment. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the marriage seems definitely on the rocks in this episode um, because I, I guess it's partly because, right, like Damon is finally just like, all right, now is my, here, the reason I put myself in this position was or the, you know, eventuality of something like this. Like, it's, right. he, he's he's very self-interested, as we see also later um, in the episode. Yeah, I think it's like, is it a combat? It's, you know, how much do you want to lean in on? Like, this is what he views his responsibility is, is that he's meant for this moment. He is mm-hmm. meant to be here to go to war against the Greens versus this is just what he wants. You know, right. like, this is yeah. sort of what he, you know, he's desired since he was a boy that the, you know, we became kings with dragons, not with dreams, as he's going to say later. How much is that, you know, him sort of feeling protective about the fact that he didn't know about the Song of Ice and Fire legacy versus how much he's just been fantasizing about war for all of these years. Either way, that's where he is leaning, and Rainier is going to tell Jace, you're my heir. Whatever is left to inherit after all of the shit hits the fan is yours, so please go and make sure that Damon doesn't do anything insane without my command. Um, and so Jaceris is going to go into the war room and try and shout Damon down uh, and basically say, nope, uh, whatever you're trying to do right now, my mother does not want happening. She wants nothing happening until she says it. And Damon is kind of, uh, you know, he, he's at first trying to get the prince to, to be on board with him in the war effort. And I think after a moment, uh, it turns towards him being like, well, why don't we go outside and I'll show you the true meaning of loyalty. And I feel like it, it is in a way, Richard, like Damon almost trying to groom the prince towards like his outlook of how yeah. a war like this needs to be handled. And there's a 100% a gender dynamic in that, you know, yeah. like the, you don't have the, the, you know, like I'm not your father, but like I'm the closest thing to it. And also like I'm the closest thing to like a king. You know, yeah, 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 she's the queen, but like, come on, let's 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 talk, like, have some kind of boy talk, you know. Um, and I think that will probably continue to rear its head, uh, in the coming season. Yeah, very likely. Uh, so when we do go outside with Damon, 
He's there with two members of the King's Guard, Sir Laurent and Sir Stefan. Uh, interestingly, Sir Stefan, uh, I believe Stefan Darkhold is his name, Darklin rather, uh, is the knight who uh, leaves King's Landing with Viserys's crown and brings it to Rhaenyra in the book. They gave that role to, to Sir Eric in the show. Sir Eric in the book is the one who is on Dragonstone. So it's just a little bit of a Freaky Friday happening with these uh. two characters. Um, but it's Sir Laurent and Sir Stefan who are here, and Damon is going to what? Like, uh, like force them into okay, either you are Team Rhaenyra or you are food for Caraxes here. Uh, make your right. choice. You've one choice to you know to you know, one moment to decide this. They've already kind of sworn loyalty to her, and he's like, I want you to do it again. <laughs> Double loyalty, and, yeah, uh, to make sure. And and then he considers the third eventuality, which is like. Or you're lying to me now, and just so you know, if you, if that's the case, it's going to be really bad for It'll you. It'll be right? so much worse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's yeah. He's pretty clear about like you are either loyal to Rhaenyra, or you die now, or you're not loyal to Rhaenyra, and you die horribly later. Right. Um. Feels like that's on the show for a reason. Uh-huh. Uh, like I don't know that I love the shot for both of Sir Lord and Sir Stefan here. I feel like Damon making this threat feels like you kind of have to make good on the threat if it's going to be on the show. Well, if not them, someone else certainly. You know, yes. like he, as we see in that horrible scene with with Rhaenyra where he chokes her essentially. Yeah, like he is a, and also we, you know, we also saw him kill his wife horribly. So like he, oh, yeah. he's he's a violent guy. He's a pretty bad dude. Um. Rhaenyra, we cut back to her, um, and her scene is sort of juxtaposed with what's going on with the dragon and what's going on with Damon. Um, she has the line, get out, get out now. Uh, this is straight from the book. Uh, I didn't clock it on the show if she said, uh, monster, get out. That is the, the phrase that is used in Fire and Blood. Um, when she is uh, when she is having um, uh, when she's trying to give birth to to this baby girl named Visenya, who does not get named on the show as far as I clocked. But this baby is named Visenya in the book after Aegon the Conqueror is one of his two uh, sister wives, who is the one who is the the more war minded of the two. Damon has been compared to her at certain points throughout this season as well. Um, but she is not to be. She is stillborn, and it is really graphically rendered. Uh, this scene where Rhaenyra gives birth to this uh, this this poor this poor child. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there's there's something kind of, kind of like for me that was vaguely reminiscent of the end. Is it the end of the first season of Game of Thrones where like Danny is ill and then the baby is dead, right? And then, but the something with the yes. dragon eggs, right? Like there's some kind of almost, you know, it's horrible, brutal, sad, but there's something kind of mystical also happening. Yeah, there. So in season one is where she uh, is on like the other side of her of her like deal with the devil with with Miri Mazdor, uh, right. Daenerys is, and she gives birth to the dragons at the end. She's you know bringing dragons back into the world after centuries of being asleep essentially. Uh, and here we're seeing something very different with Rainier, and yet it does feel thematically connected. Um, whether or not that's by design or it's just sort of where the story falls at this point in time. Um, in the book, this takes place over the course of many days. It seems like it's a lot quicker on the show. I think that this could be the last major childbirth scene that we're going to get on House of the Dragon. I would expect maybe after some of the response to these scenes from the audience, uh, that if there are other uh, designs for scenes like this, they may rein it in, uh, would would be my guess, Richard. 
Yeah, I would I would think so. Um, I think they have certainly made an effective point about like how difficult life in the world for women is in this whole universe. Uh, And, you know, I think just for the sake of like not further traumatizing people, uh, they might. Yeah. Point me back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so we go to this funeral for the child and there's a lot of ways in which, you know, you know, leaving aside how this episode connects back to Game of Thrones, I think there's a lot of ways in which this episode calls back to its own history, House of the Dragons history. Um, the fact that she's giving birth to a baby named Visenya, uh, which is something that even, uh, Viserys and Emma were talking about before Emma's labor that ends in tragedy in the first episode, uh, that I think it's uh, Viserys says, we already have one Visenya, and he's referring to, to Damon. So we have a, a, a same-named baby here. We also have, of course, another harrowing childbirth scene, but we also have another funeral for a child, uh, which is what we got in the first episode of House of the Dragon. And this time, I think both in, uh, obviously, in her getting crowned with her father's crown when Sir Eric shows up, and Damon is going to place that on Rhaenyra's head. There is just the fact that she is being recognized by the people around her at the very least as the queen of Westeros, whether or not that's going to be widely accepted, I think is the central drama of the show now. Uh, But she also, to me, I don't know if she looked this way to you at all, Richard, but she kind of looked almost like Viserys. Uh, I feel like the way that she was cloaked, the way that she was robed, um, the way that she is standing before all these people with almost this element of like surprise of like, am I ready for this? There was something that really connected Emma Darcy as Rainier in this moment to Patty Considine as Viserys for me. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, the show is, you know, continually telling us that like history's repeating itself uh, with different, you know, different, some slight variations or whatever. And like the, the, everyone is just kind of caught in this long story of, um, of parents and children and doom and ascension and all that stuff. And yeah, so I think they're definitely trying to be like, we began the season with this thing, and now we're kind of bookending it with this. Yeah. So when everyone has pledged their loyalty to Rhaenyra, pointedly not Rhaenys, uh, she is the only one, I think, that I saw still standing during this whole scene. Uh, she hasn't made up her mind quite yet. Or at the very least, she wants to, to consult with the Sea Snake when the Sea Snake arrives. It sounds like the Sea Snake is doing okay, is the prognosis that we have received at this point in the episode. Yes, yeah, and I think that Rainus is trying to decide, you, you know, not, yes, specifically if she should support Rhaenyra, but also just, like, is my dream of neutrality and just, possible. like, living our little lives yeah. possible at all? And she makes a turn on that later in the episode, obviously, um, and, uh, yeah, so she's, she's has to really having to calculate kind of at tribal, <laughs> you know? Yes, exactly. So she's going to be, like, the silent person who's in the back row, uh, just watching everybody else right. melt down in front of Jeff. Uh, So she's just trying to wait to see where her vote is going to land in this next scene, which kind of is evocative of a tribal council, right? You know, when we're around the painted table and this is where we see it lit up and illuminated with the candles and God, it looks incredible. Again, it's just so worth repeating that that piece of craft is just highlight that, bring that into season two in a major way, please. It looks amazing. Um, And so we're going to get the big introduction of Rhaenyra. She comes in with all the honorifics of Queen of the First Men and all of that jazz. Uh, And she shows up and we get to see a little bit of the lay of the land at this point. It's a lot of information here, Richard, that like it comes really fast and furious. Mm -hmm. I think the big points are they're like their numbers when it comes to individual boots on the ground not fantastic certainly nothing in comparison to what the high towers have at their disposal 
What they do have at their disposal is some stale oaths, as Otto is going to describe them in a scene from now. Uh, they have um, sworn allegiance from the Baratheons, from the Aarons, from the Starks of Winterfell that they need to check in on and see if those oaths are still uh, are still relevant. Uh, can they count on those alliances? And if they can't, what they at least have are dragons, and so many of them. They have, I believe that the count is 13 dragons to the four that the High Towers have. And while yeah. the High Towers have Vagar, the biggest, meanest dragon in all the land, the Targaryen line, Rhaenyra's line, no slouches either. They have a bunch that are just uh, unclaimed on Dragonstone. We're going to see Vermithor uh, in the scene with Damon towards the end of the episode. And there's a bunch of other ferocious dragons that are here as well. It was pretty cool as like a fire and blood nerd to hear Moondancer, to hear Vermax, Arix, Taraxes, all of these names, Vermithor. That was fun. I don't know if anyone else was like, if it was just like kind of like hearing Jacob and Sons and like kind of trying to move on to the rest of the show. Uh, but I had a great time hearing all these dragons names being recounted. I saw someone on Twitter, they, they posted a screenshot with the subtitles of, of Damon saying all the names and they were, it was like, my doctor prescribing me new medication. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. I have Googled Vermax before and I've yeah. gotten different results than a dragon. Uh, I will Ask say. Ask your doctor if Cyraxes is for you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. And then Moondancer sounds like a nickname for something. But, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they've got a lot of dragons and Damon is the one who is basically saying, we'll just, we'll either scare the shit out of them with our dragons or we will burn burn them to ash. And it's Rhaenyra who is really insisting on, I'm not going to be the ruler of ash and bone. Uh, and this is very similar to, to, to Danny for so much of Game of Thrones. It's a, it's a pivot away from the book. In the book, it's really Rhaenyra is all about like, let's blast them with dragon fire. I'm ready to go. Uh, and in the show, we're seeing a different tact. And again, it's worth noting that Fire and Blood, the book that this is based on, it is a history book and it's a fake yeah. history book. And we are left to fill in a lot of the details and it's being told to us from second and third hand sources and people who were not there. So the show has a lot of license to reinterpret this stuff and to have their true quote unquote version of Rainier being the one who, as Rainey's is going to say a few scenes from now, be the only one in the room who wants to hold the realm together. Yeah. And I think there's something poignant about Rainier honoring her father's sort of the peace, the, his like peaceful kind of you know identity, I guess. Yeah. Um, and being like, this is what he, t this is what he tried to do, and that's what I'm going to try to do is hold this all together. I don't want to ruin it, um, just out of you know whatever. And and yeah, I I think you know for as ineffectual or sort of frustrating as Viserys could be throughout this whole season, like I think they're now realizing that he was actually doing something kind of difficult and and yeah. did it sort of successfully. Yeah, for a long time. Uh, is she going to have better results or similar results? I think the end of the episode makes it a lot harder to imagine that path is still available for her. But we'll see. Season two, 2024, hopefully. Knock on wood. Um, in the meantime, um, we are going to see the first clash of these two sides as the High Towers come to Dragonstone. Uh, Otto Hightower leading the parade. For the second time this season, we get another Dragonstone bridge scene. Uh, which was also directed by Greg Gatanes, uh many, many moons ago. That was back in episode two. Uh, so I have an interview with him coming up here for VF.com, which you should read, be on the lookout for. Uh, we'll definitely ask him about A Tale of Two Bridges, because I think that these are really, really fun scenes in relation to one another. You know, similar energy, but different players. I mean, the players are the same, but the game has changed and mm -hmm. people have switched allegiances. I believe that's a MacGruberism at this point. Uh, and I think Rhaenyra, you know, was positioned against Damon once upon a time. Here she is positioned against Otto. 
but also still sort of positioned against Damon, at least from Damon's perspective. It's very complicated the way in which she wants to assert some power here in this moment against Otto, who is coming for her surrender. And she is saying, well, you're coming before the queen. You should bow, but also doesn't want this to spill out into fire and bloodshed at this moment in time. Yeah, I thought there was a fun bit of blocking in that scene uh, where she lands the dragon behind Hightower and his people, and then she walks through them and turns to face them to be like, you are, you guys are stuck between, <laughs> you know, me and the dragon, you know, yeah. and, um, you know, she, she puts up a good sort of wall of, of, um, of strength, um, even though, as we saw, you know, in earlier scenes that she doesn't really have the numbers. no. Otto is presenting her with the following terms uh, that uh, Aegon is offering generous terms. You will acknowledge him as king, and in exchange, he will confirm your continued holding of Dragonstone. It'll pass down to your, his words, trueborn son, Jaceris. Mm-hmm. Uh So that feels like a concession already. Yep. Uh, Lucerus will be confirmed as the heir of Driftmark. Your sons by Damon, they will have high honors. Aegon uh, the, the third, I believe, uh, will serve as the king's squire, and Viserys will serve as his cupbearer. All the knights and lords who have sided with you will also be pardoned. Um, Richard, would she be a fool to accept this offer? Is it too good to be true? Yeah, I mean, I don't really believe it, um, but it sounds good for a second. You know, you're like, oh, this could just end. We could just, you know, whatever. And, and then also... Otto makes a, a, an appeal to sort of Rhaenyra's sentimental side with, you know, mentioning Allison and their past friendship. And like, you, you have this flash of a second where you're like, maybe they could just go back to the easiness of yesteryear. Um, but yeah, Otto has not shown himself to be someone that you can trust. So I think she's right to be skeptical. No. And he's, you know, he's being, uh, he, he like lays all that out in a way that's very sharp. Like the terms, they do sound great, but the, the tone of his voice, I think tells you a lot. And when she basically says no, and when Damon really, you know, doesn't help Rhaenyra's cause, if she is actually considering it at all, he says, I'd rather feed my kids to my dragons than have them serve. He says some really bad stuff about Aegon. Uh, and Otto at that point is like, Listen to me. Um, Aegon has been anointed in front of the entire realm. He has the Conqueror's crown. He has the Conqueror's sword. He has the Conqueror's name. He's the king. Every single symbol of legitimacy is his. It doesn't matter that you were Viserys' heir. Whether or not he gave this to Aegon, it's done. Just let it go. He has this quote of, Stale oaths will not put you on the Iron Throne, princess. The succession changed the day your father sired a son. I only regret that you and he were the last to see the truth of it. Um, this is very, very intense, uh, this, this scene between them, that you could really imagine at any point will spill over into to full-on violence. Uh, members of the Kingsguard on, on both sides of this fight on the bridge, of this like, um, you know, verbal fight on the bridge, they've got their hands on their hilts of their swords. They are ready to, to take this thing to the next level. Yes, yeah, and I think they are just kind of checking a box being like so they can say well we did offer this the stuff you know they, mm-hmm. they probably know that's not going to be accepted and you know and there is something in all its condescension and chauvinism or whatever like Otto is right that the minute that this kid was born that that changed the whole thing you know and um and you know while while Rhaenyra was probably smart to take her family away from King's Landing for all these years uh for safety reasons and just so they could like live their own lives it does mean now they are behind, you know, the like they're they're 
the, the greens are ahead of them you know yeah. they've already put so much into motion as we see later in the episode where there are already emissaries out to these kind of like um swing swing votes you know uh they have and, the popular vote right like yeah they, yeah they have the people they have like individual numbers and they have the masses too uh yeah. and that is something that all the dragons of the world couldn't necessarily buy you uh yeah. so that, that's sort of the the really tricky thing that Rhaenyra and her side have to contend with is sure the previous king wanted me to be on the throne does anybody else want me to be on the throne and Otto's coming forward with that pretty much but he's yeah. also coming forward with uh, this piece of parchment that took me, you know, I had to double take to realize what this was. He's he's giving her this page from the book that young Rhaenyra, back when she was Millie Alcock, mm-hmm. uh, tore from the book in the very first episode of the show. It's about the warrior queen Nymeria, who is uh, considered one of the founders of Dorne. Uh, and this is something that she and Alicent were going over in the Weirwood, uh, by the Weirwood tree in, in King's Landing at the start of the whole season. Uh, Allison has held on to this and this is sort of her like this is her proof of life kind of right this is her yeah. proof of affection for Rainier like please take take us up on this I mean it I will protect you I will look out for you and I do think that when Rainier sees this she tells Otto King's Landing will have my answer on the morrow and I think there is a part of me that wonders is she really authentically considering maybe I should just lay this down maybe I should just you know trust my old friend that something of our old relationship still exists here. Yeah, because she knows that like if she goes forward with the the nuclear option uh that that probably ends with either her or Allison dead. <laughs> you know, and yeah. and um so she has to decide basically if that if that friendship that that bond is really over. Yeah. So she's going to, you know, sort of sit with that decision. Damon really wishes she wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, they go back into the castle, and it's a little bit of a public spat at first, right? Uh, Damon's telling her, they just declared war. What are you going to do about it? Uh, and she wants to clear the room. She wants to have this conversation alone with Damon. With her uh, husband, she, uncle. He, with her uncle husband, as I've been writing about him many times to the great Case Wickman's chagrin, uh, that, yes, she wants to have this conversation with him privately, and she wants to talk to him. I thought this was fascinating, Richard. Uh, she wants to talk to him air to air, right? We've both been in this position before. Uh, we, you were Viserys's heir once upon a time. I was his heir for many, many years. You know about the Song of Ice and Fire. I know about the Song of Ice mm-hmm. and Fire. There's this great war that's coming for us. And this is when Damon lashes out physically uh, and he starts to, to choke her. And it's like this horrific, violent, knee-jerk response to... I've been frosted out of this key piece of Targaryen information, and you're just telling this to me so casually. Uh, it's it's really interesting to me the way in which this kind of revives the... There's a lot of love that Damon has had for his brother over the course of the season, but a lot of ways in which he's really disrespected the way that he ran his shit. And this really comes out of like, the dreams mean nothing. The dreams are ridiculous. The dragons are all that matters. But it's like this false, horribly impotent bravado, Richard, mm-hmm. from a guy who, like, you just weren't let in on the deal. And Rainier sees that immediately. Yeah. And and in that lashing out, he betrays that, like, oh, he still wants this for himself. You know, right. he hasn't kind of taken uh, happily taken second position so Rainier can ascend the throne. Like, no, no, this is all about him. It's about his ego and his, you know, his long, long held desire uh, for power. Yeah, and so he's being pretty clear, I think, in a lot of the ways that he's operated thus far. 
uh, that he is, you know, hoping that she will, you know, basically be the mouthpiece, right? And that yeah. he will be the person who's actually shot calling this thing. And when I think he realizes that Rhaenyra isn't just doing this because she's the heir and she's supposed to, but she feels like there is this sacred purpose. There's this holy purpose of going all the way back to Aegon the Conqueror at the very least. There has been this premonition of a great war that is coming and is going to last a single episode of Game of Thrones, but it could happen on our show. Uh, And so she's telling him about this. And she really, really believes in it. And it's a big part of why she is working really hard to contain this thing and not let it spill out into the streets quite yet. Damon is so displeased with this. And I think it really leaves us seeing this man for who he is. If there was ever any question uh, about what's Damon all about, what's Damon's deal... Like this is pathetic. Uh, it's just it's it's really 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 pathetic. Um, it's real. It's a really well acted scene, I think, between Matt Smith and Emma Darcy for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think it it shows it's Damon unmasked in a big way. That something like this could trigger him in, into such a horrible, violent response. Tells you everything you need to know about who Damon Targaryen really is when it comes to his relationship with power. And I don't think Rhaenyra will forget it. No. Know? Definitely not. I love I love the look that Emma Darcy uh, gives him in this moment of like it's somewhere between like how could you and also like of course this right. is your reaction. Um, yep. Yeah. Just really really expertly done. Um, so we move on from that scene to uh, the scene of the the first uh, scene with the sea snake and Rainey's in quite some time. It feels like this conversation has just been going on across the years, Richard. Uh, like mm-hmm. a lot has been left unsaid between the two of them since Driftmark, since they lost Lanor. And they finally get to pick it up. It seems like the sea snake just cut bait and ran um, once they lost their son. She says, you abandoned us. You abandoned me when I needed you most for more adventure at sea, as has always been your way. Um, And I think at this moment on uh, what is no longer going to be his deathbed, but very well could have been, finally, the sea snake is like, you were right. I was wrong. I was holding on to these fantasies about power. We've lost absolutely everything. And now the person who killed our kid is standing to start this huge, terrible war. Let's just go back to Driftmark and completely unplug ourselves from the situation. And it's Rainey's is like, ah, we can't really do that anymore. That's no longer an option. Yeah, it's too late. You know, he should have had that realization many years ago, you know, and uh, I think that's, you know, one of the sort of more tragic uh, side narratives on this season was exactly this debate between these two people, you know. Yeah. And now Rainey's has to be the kind of sensible one again, and unfortunately, the sensible response is not the peaceful one. No. So she's saying, listen, I've been observing what's going on over the, these last few days. And whether or not Rhaenyra had a hand in killing Lanor, she's definitely the candidate. You know, the, 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 the least evil of two evils. Uh, yeah. she is, she's trying to keep this thing together. Sea Snake's kind of like, ah, all right. Okay, fine. Help me out of bed. Uh, and so he's going, to, he's going to go and he's going to make his allegiance to Rhaenyra known. And I don't know how you felt about uh, the way that this plays out. There's there's a degree to which it seems like Rhaenyra is not only now on board, or Rhaenys is now on board with Rhaenyra, rather, uh, but also kind of seems like happily team Rhaenyra. And there is a piece of me that's like, but you do think she killed your son, right? Right, right. right. Yeah, well, I mean, unless maybe Lanor has been sending secret postcards or something <laughs> to his mom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was imagining him like at a cafe in the free cities, like reading the newspaper being like, oh, God, what a mess over in Western. Uh-huh. Like, glad I'm not there. I feel like that's coming season two. <laughs> yeah. uh, that feels like a very easy season two scene to imagine for sure. 
Um, but we're going to have the sea snake. He's going to come into the room now with Rhaenyra and everybody else. Uh, and he's going to kind of give his opinion of the lay of the land. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, he's going to pledge his house and his fleet to Rhaenyra's side that our houses are bound by common blood and cause. The high tower treason cannot stand. Uh, and this is very good news for Rhaenyra. They really needed the Valerians to stand a chance here because, of course, the High Towers have the Lannisters in their pocket and the Lannisters have gold in theirs. Uh, so they really need another wealthy benefactor with tons of ships in order to stand a chance in this fight. And now they've got them. Um, but they need more than that. They still need allies. Uh, they need to make sure that they have people across the, the realm or in their corner. They have the sea on lock. Uh, I guess the resolution to all of these uh, flirtations with the Stepstones, Richard, is that this last war really finally did it. Now we control the Stepstones. The Triarchy has been routed. Please believe us this time. And we control the Narrow Sea. Uh, And if we control the Narrow Sea, we can cut off all seaborne travel and we can stop trade going into King's Landing and we'll starve them out, basically, is his strategy. Which is significant, right? And and the, the you know the the way the sh- the ep- the scene is directed and scored there's a turn in the music and and Rainier's face kind of lights up when she realizes like oh that's actually really big you know for all of the times we've been talking about the sne- sea snake for all of his vainglorious adventurism at sea it actually seems to have worked finally and um and that's really uh, a major major deal yeah, cut to season two, Crab Feeder 4.0 showing up on the Stepstones. Sure, yeah, Everybody something. on the internet losing their minds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. I'm sure it's coming. Uh, but they need to. They need to continue. Uh, they need to. They, they need to continue strengthening their hold over the trade routes. And Rainus is saying, like, I'll do that. I'll go on Dragonback, and I'll, I'll, you know, preside over that personally. So she's really in. She's in, you know, mm-hmm. both feet, all the wings, everything that she needs to lend to the power of this situation. But it's still not enough. We still need to secure the Vale. We need to secure the North. We need to secure Storm's End and make sure that the oaths that they swore in front of my father are still uh, relevant, are still going to be upheld. So let's send some ravens out. And it's Jaceris who pitches sort of this this you know noble idea, but a, a fatal one for his brother, unfortunately, that dragons fly faster than ravens. You should send us. So the boys have been enlisted into the war. Well, I mean, I think that a, a kind of like lordly person wants nothing more than some teenage boy to show up and be like, mm-hmm. do this, yes. you know, like it's a great idea, really. Um, you know, you, you sort of appreciate from a familiar perspective that like a familial perspective that like Rain era wants her kids to be involved and competent and thinks they're ready for the world. But at the same time, you're like, these, this was not the best option. I don't think for getting these messages across. No, I mean, I get it. Cause there's like, there's the there's the sense of urgency and you know things need to happen quickly and it's kind of like why send snail mail when i can just text message them you know and so like let's let's do this fast but there is you know it would be nice if uh they could have brought a couple of extra people with them you know luke could have traveled with an adult right i think you could just add an extra saddle to to eric's i think would have worked um but uh they go off on their own and they are only allowed to go from Rhaenyra's standpoint when they when they swear by the Seven that they are not going as soldiers. They are going as messengers. They swear under the eye of the Seven that that's what they are going to do. Uh, and we get to hear a little bit of a season two tease, I think, here, Richard, uh, when Jace is 
being told of what to expect from his visit to the north, that there is the Lord of Winterfell, Cregan Stark, uh, who is close in age to Jace, and hopefully they can find some common interest as men, is what she tells Jace. Mm. I think a fairly safe bet that if you were missing some Starks from House of the Dragon season one, season two is going to have you covered to some extent. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was, I was, I was kind of wondering if maybe the, the, those, the way that Rhaenyra described it was like, is the show setting up that Jace and this guy are going to have a romance or like what? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious right. what, what, what all that's going to be. And uh, yeah, I've been missing the North, so I'm excited for that. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that the way that the people who are responsible for the show have been talking about season two, the scope is expanding, the scope is widening. It's still very much about Rhaenyra and Allison's families and the the feud between them that is now spilling out into legitimate war. But we have a lot of other characters on the show now, and the scope of the war sort of necessitates leaving the King's Landing region. Uh, we're done with time jumps. We're done with just being sort of set in this one place. We may be traveling a bit for season two. I think the promise of what's going on with Jace and the fact that we follow Luke into his sadly short-lived journey into Storm's End, and instead of focusing on Jace, it's because Jace has more to do in season two, and some of what we will see from season two is being talked about here. It's sort of like in Game of Thrones towards the end of season one, they start talking about Stannis Baratheon a bit, and season two, you just launch right into Stannis Baratheon, who becomes a major force on the show for a while. Whether or not that's what's going to happen with Craig and Stark in the North, uh, to be determined. But I think seeing some of that, at the very least, feels guaranteed. Uh, so that'll be a fun casting opportunity, I think, to see who they get to play Craig and Stark. I'm really excited. Uh, I, I, I look forward to seeing how that shakes out, for sure. Yeah, because, you know, the, the start of Game of Thrones is about the Stark-Baratheon relationship. And now we have Baratheons, and at least Stark's mentioned in this episode, so... Um, yeah, I think it's important for the whole of the lore of all of this world, the Martin's whole universe, that we like understand where the Starks were at this point in history. Yeah, for sure. Meanwhile, Luke looks pretty nervous. Uh, you know, he does not look like he's especially eager to go on this mission. Jace, being the older brother, is being sent much further away. Rainier is trying to tell Luke that Storm's End, it's a short ride. You'll be there. It's like, a, it's like going from New York to Montreal. Yeah. It's like 45 yeah. minutes, man. You'll be fine. Uh, and Lord Boros, he's a proud man. He'll be honored to host a Prince of the Realm. She says to him, I expect you will receive a very warm welcome. Ay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Famous last words. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it's, uh, yeah, well, she's wrong about the weather, a bit, at least. It's raining. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's probably pretty cold. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would guess. Yes. Uh, so they fly off and the camera goes with Luke. Um, but before we continue with him to Storm's End, we do have this quick scene still on Dragonstone as Matt Smith gets to sing in High Valyrian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that any of us had that on our bingo card heading into the finale, but he is alone in this cavernous area on his way towards a very large dragon that is not his own. This is Vermithor. Vermithor was the dragon of the wise king Jaehaerys before Viserys, who has gone unclaimed since Jaehaerys died. So this dragon has just been parked here, collecting dust and growing uh, in uh, the bellows of, of, of Dragonstone for all of this time. So I don't know if what, you, what you took away from this scene. It's obviously very atmospheric, Damon coming to see this dragon on the other side of what he has just done to Rhaenyra. Well, it's interesting from, you know, the context of, of having watched and read Game of Thrones is that, like, the big thing with that is the dragons are gone. And so now we have, you know, constant mention in this episode of all these other dragons we haven't met yet, we haven't even heard of before. 
Um, and so this, you know, while it's a kind of grand and awesome in the old sense of the word scene with, with da- uh, Damon in this cave, like this is the beginning of the end for these creatures, you know? And uh, so I, I, I'm curious now to see how that all plays out. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was also notable when he's, you know, when he's confronted with this information that being a Targaryen king means protecting this sacred knowledge that he knew nothing about. Mm-hmm. That he goes and sees the old king's dragon. Yeah. Like this is sort of the closest connection he has to true Targaryen uh, royalty in his mind. Maybe that if he really believes that you know dreams don't make us kings, dragons do. This is sort of like the center of that Venn diagram of like if it's true, if there is this old dream that is you know stalking through the hallways of the Targaryen lineage that this dragon would have been in proximity to that. Uh, and this dragon, like, what secrets do you keep? What, what rooms were you in when Jaehaerys was speaking his truth? So I think that there is, like, there is, there is something to me that is, is really sad about Damon visiting this dragon at this point in time, both in terms of what you're very rightly pointing out. We know what Game of Thrones looked like as far as the dragon landscape, so this cannot end particularly well for the dragons of the Targaryens and the dragons of Westeros. But I think it also is like very centrally located on Damon's struggle as a character. And my empathy well is pretty dry for him mm-hmm. at this moment in time. And yet I still think it's, you know, when, th- when these shows, when the Game of Thrones shows are at their best, they are shoring up some measure of understanding of the human condition, even within someone who's fairly rotten. Uh, and, I, and I did like, I, I was in that moment with Damon. Um, I did feel like, this is somebody who is who is pretty low and is a very scary person as a result of that. But here he is sort of alone in the company of one of the only things he can he can trust and one of the only things he believes in. And you're kind of getting to see this other sort of private, quieter side of the guy. Yeah. Uh, and it just, you know, further exploring the dimensionality of the characters of this show. He, like all the rest, is just caught up in this thing that he was born into. You know, he's bad, but, um, you know, you'd have to kind of say, like, well, he's the product of a bad environment. Yeah. Part of me is like, maybe that's why he's like, I don't think I should leave Bravos. Like, I, should, I don't think I should leave Pentos, Lena. Yeah. I think if I go back there, I'm going to do some terrible shit. Uh, I think it's better if I'm just stuck in a library for the rest of my life. Maybe he knew. Maybe he knew himself well enough to know. But yeah, he's one he of the is. many characters on this season who had that sort of glimpse of the, the world beyond and the free, the, you know, sort of better life. And, uh, you know, he, he, like the rest of them or almost all of them chose not to. Yeah. Yeah. So here he is. Um, so we go to Storm's End for basically the rest of the episode, mm-hmm. and we were in Storm's End earlier in the season, and it was pretty cool to see, but it is exceptionally cool to see Storm's End's exterior and this giant tower and the storms raging around the very aptly named castle. I don't know if this was as neat for you as it was for me, Richard, but this was very satisfying to finally go to Storm's End. Oh, it was so atmospheric and to see the dragon kind of lit up by lightning, you know, and, um, you know, I, I love all the sort of different like weather environments in Westeros that we've seen in the, on these shows yep. over the years. And, um, but the minute that we saw Luke flying there in the rain and the, the lightning and everything, you're like, uh, you, you know, you're like, this is not going to end well somehow, you know, because it's just yeah. so foreboding. Yeah. They, I think it was really clever that you see Vagar parked outside uh and you know exactly where he is as illuminated by the lightning and when luke is going to come out and he's going to be basically sent away that when the lightning strikes again he's gone like that's some jurassic park mm-hmm. t-rex shit yeah, you know yeah, like, yeah. where's the really, goat what, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what happened to the goat very evocative for sure 
Um, so Luke is going to come in. Uh, he has a message for Lord Boros. And uh, what he does not know is uh, that he has been beaten to the punch. I think he suspects it pretty strongly when he sees Vagar parked outside. I don't know. Maybe if I see Vagar parked outside, I get back on my dragon, uh-huh. Richard, and I go home yep. like, yeah, I think we lost the Baratheons. Yeah, they, uh, they beat us to the punch on that one. Um, so let's try someone else. Uh, yeah, I think we got to call a different house. But I think Baratheons are, are out, of the, out of the menu for us. But poor Luke, um, his calculation and- was probably like, but I, my mom sent me on this big, it's my first like big boy mission. Yeah. And like, I can't, I have to do it. Um, which again, is further reinforcing the tragedy of all these people's lives that he felt he had to yeah. do this for honor's sake. Yeah, and I mean, like, to some degree, I don't know. Is he is he wrong? You know, and and I don't mean yeah. that like was this the right thing to do. I mean, is is his outlook of the situation necessarily wrong? You know, Rhaenyra really needs the Baratheons, mm-hmm. and she has entrusted her son with this. And this is the kind of thing that when she was younger, she would have rightly called like brutally unfair. I'm a kid. Yeah. You shouldn't put this on me. And she's doing that to her son, and here he is feeling the weight of the world on his shoulders. And unlike Rhaenyra, who was lucky enough to survive into her adulthood here, he's not going to be able to make it out of the region. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so he's he's not the first casualty in this war, but he's, I think, thus far the most significant one. And, and you know, it was I guess they knew the risk involved, sort of, but um, maybe they should have considered that the, the Greens would be uh, one step ahead of them. A couple steps ahead, at the very least. Uh, as Aemond is here, uh, he has gotten to the Baratheons first. He has, uh, I don't know if it's directly stated on the show. The implication is there for me, at least. In the book, Aemond is going to offer himself up to the Baratheons as somebody to marry one of your daughters, Lord Burroughs. So he has come with the marriage pact. Um, and uh, Lord Baratheon is you know, basically laughing in Luke's face of, what are you offering me other than reminders of my dad's oath? Uh, so he's, he's really not buying what Luke is selling. And he's very firmly team Aemond until Aemond starts puffing up his chest mm-hmm. and he takes his eye patch off. And you see what I really didn't know if the show was going to go here. He has a sapphire in place of his missing eye, which uh, I wrote in my recap, more Gotham City than Westeros. <laughs> yeah. And yet it's straight from the book. Um, I don't know what you thought about uh, uh, Aemond's look. Well, Eamon always has a lot of luck, you know, so I would expect nothing less um, yeah. from this, you know, kind of fashion plate guy uh, with his silken hair and fancy eye patch, um, you know, and it's a, it's a funny, it's funny to think of this kind of clearly scary guy showing up and being like, give me one of your daughters and the, and the, yeah. the Baratheon guy being like, that sounds like a good idea, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he now not only wants one of the Baratheon's daughters, he wants one of Luke's eyes. Yes. And Luke can choose. Uh, and please do a good job because I would like to present it intact to my mother. This is just like horrifying stuff that he is saying here. And Luke rightly leaves, uh, but not until Lord Baratheon is like, this is not going to happen in my house. Mm-hmm. Take it outside. Uh, so he doesn't say don't do it. Right. He says don't do it here. Uh, and that's not good. Um Maybe Luke should have stayed the night. I don't know. Uh, but he, he leaves and he goes out into the courtyard and Vagar is nowhere to be found. And if you weren't tipped off to the fact at this point that things are really going to get explosive uh, here in this final few minutes of the episode, the fact that Vagar is not here probably clues you in. Uh, so we do get this big sequence of, uh, of Luke going off. Uh, we have Vagar flying overhead uh, like Jake Sully, Toruk Marteau. 
uh, as we're seeing mm-hmm. the giant dragon overshadowing Arix, and we get this big dragon on dragon battle. And it's so sad because Luke can see the golden snitch. You know, he's about to grab it and <laughs> win for Gryffindor. And, um, uh. <laughs> there's a little bit of that, right? I mean, come on, there is a little Quidditch <laughs> no, to this. You're not wrong. Um, which is the one? Which is the one with the stormy Quidditch cup? I'm trying to remember. Oh God, uh, you're right. I don't remember, but um, yeah. But it is very evocative of that. You're not wrong. This is probably uh, the most special effectsy sequence we've seen on these shows. I think, like, this is like real, like. You know, multiple shots of dragon battle sort of kind of thing, which which feels like a new thing. But I know that that is like a big part of um, the Targaryen lore of these wars, you know, is the are these dragon battles, basically. And this isn't quite that because it's an accident in a way. But sure. Yeah. But I think it does give you insight into two things, at least one, what this looks like for the story. And like when we're talking about the nuclear power of the dragons, what that can actually look like that a dragon could just snatch another dragon out of the sky, like nothing, you know, there's, there's that. So the stakes are huge. uh, And I think that they are, they're really, you know, filled out by this sequence. The other thing, this is more my question to you, Richard is, so this is what it might look like literally visually on the show as we are moving deeper into what is clearly a war that cannot be undone mm-hmm. because of this action. Um, and if we had sort of like a ponderous contemplative season of a Game of Thrones show in House of the Dragon season one, I think the lid has been blown off by the end of this season with Aemon uh, killing Luke accidentally or not. Um, and you can imagine that there will be more of this kind of thing prevalent on the show moving forward. Were you sold? Did it, did it, did it, you know, was it effective for you? Was it a little too CGI-y? How did you feel about this? And if this is going to be more dominant on the show, what does that make you feel about the future of House of the Dragon? It seemed a little silly at first, but then I kind of got into it, you know, because you you felt the stakes of it. I think the most important thing is going forward. They just have to make the scenes kind of legible. You know, sometimes when you watch a big superhero movie and you're like, I don't understand where anyone is in relation to anyone else. And it's just this kind of swirl of action and whatever. Um, I'm hope I hope they can avoid that. And I think that what this scene did also really well and kind of provoked questions in me is like, oh right, these dragons are like living creatures with like minds of their own. And yes, these noble lines have long controlled the dragons, but some of the maybe the, maybe it's just the younger people don't have full control of these animals, you know and um, that intrigued me about like what the dragons will mean going forward is like, how much can they actually be relied on? Yeah. I mean, how many of these people have seen war, full stop, right. but how many of these people have seen war on dragon back, right. right? The dragons have seen some shit, um, but have the, have the dragon riders seen a ton? And even Aemond, who we saw a few episodes ago uh, in Ewan Mitchell's debut as the character, doing you know really fabulously well in, uh, in a duel against Kristen Cole, where it seemed like the gloves were pretty off. That was a spar, mm-hmm. right? Like that was an actual battle. And so for him to lose control over Vagar in this moment is surprising on a number of levels. This is another instance where the show is giving us its real, quote unquote, real version of events versus how it played out in the book. There are a lot of different interpretations, uh, according to various different sources, as to how this actually happened. Did Eamon aggressively track Luke down? Was Luke's body recovered? Um, did he make good on his promise with Luke's eyes? Like, there's a lot of questions about how it actually played in the book, but nowhere in there is there anything in the historical record about Eamon doing this by accident, right. uh, that this was a mistake. 
So the show is playing it that way. And yet again, we're getting this sort of, you know, like this, this tragic, um, not misunderstanding. I don't think it's, you can really um, confuse Eamon's intention of at the very least trying to like scare his nephew to death. Yeah. Um, but he clearly, he's very clearly vocally saying Vagar no. And Luke is saying the same towards his dragon. They don't want this to go to full on murder rampage. They just want to score some points. This is not how it was in the book, how this is going to play out on the show. The fact that Eamon is making this huge, tremendous error by accident is something that's a question for me uh, moving forward into the into the depth of the show. But yeah, uh, was was a big surprise. And in terms of his characterization, it's like the minute that Eamon takes, you know, takes chase um, to, I guess, continue the argument about the eyeball. You're like, I don't think he knows how he wants this to end. But he's doing it anyway, and that's I think reveals yeah. a lot about how rash he is, how maybe still young he is. That like there was no real the minute he got on the dragon and flew off in pursuit, like what did you think was going to happen? Like like what was yeah. the end game? Were you going to stop him midair and cut his eye out? Eye out? You know, like that doesn't sound right. You know, um, yeah. So yeah, what's he going to do? He's going to jump on the dragon and take Luke's eye. Right. That sounds impossible. Right. Exactly. So like this is just like this is just young people playing at something they don't understand and don't have control over. Uh, and it had terrible consequences. And I like that the show registers that on Eamon's face. He's like, oh, yeah. God, like and I don't think it's just like I'm in so much trouble. I think he's like almost maybe a little sad. Um, You know, maybe I'm being too generous there, but like there's. You know, this was not at all what was intended to happen, and yet it did. And now um, the history of this whole nation is um, going to be forever different. I think it's again, it's sort of similar to, uh, and I think to compare these characters is pretty easy. Uh, you know, it's it's not un, it's not unlike what we were talking about with Damon before. He has this private moment alone, except for the company of Vermithor, where he kind of gets to like let his guard down mm-hmm. and be sad about what he's just learned about the Targaryens, like you know really looking inward to some extent. We don't know what that actually looks like, but he has this kind of quiet moment. And here's Aemond alone in the sky on the oldest living dragon in the world being a kid again, right? Like yeah. he's back on uh, Driftmark. Uh, you know, they were re- replaying this old trauma and he's just, you know, settled that argument, but he's just opened up a whole new one. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that you and Mitchell plays the part really well. Uh, I was very excited to see how the show would handle Aemond uh, this season of the show. I really, really am so fascinated by the character. And it's an interesting shade uh, to to bring to him that there is uh, whether or not it's going to be, you know, he's going to be apologetic about this or unapologetic about this to know what's kind of underneath it um, from Aemond's perspective. I'm I'm here for the exploration of that. Uh, so it's a bit of a bit of a swing, but I'm I'm not mad at the swing. I think probably some people who are like the very book adherent people don't love this. Mm-hmm. I'm open to it. Uh, I'm open to seeing where they go. Anything that complicates um, characters more, you know, and gives us more yes. of a sense of sort of causality and how things are sort of accidentally or intentionally related, I think. I don't need the mustache twirling, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, 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 yeah, we don't need the pure, pure cartoony villain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he looks the part enough <laughs> already, exactly. you know? Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the final shot of the episode and indeed the season is the wordless uh, conveyance of the information that Luke has died. Damon comes into the room and is wait- with Rainier for the first time since their fight. Uh, it seems he is telling her what has happened to Luke. She walks toward the fire. She is alone with that information. Uh, we do not get to see her face until she turns around with murder death kill on the mind clearly you know she is incensed when she turns around 
Um, and that is where we leave House of the Dragon season one, Richard. Yeah, I mean, who would have guessed uh, that that little spat between children in a cave would result in world war, basically? Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, yeah. Um, but again, I think the show is really smart about kind of drawing the lines between like stuff in our own history where like, you know, you read about World War One and it's like that started because of so many stupid things that really shouldn't have led to what it did lead to. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of, you know, this Westeros's version of that where it's like all of this stuff is so preventable if you were just, I don't know, not gallivanting around bestride your family's legacy as Aemond is and uh, being reckless. Yeah. Uh, so we're left with this moment where the person who is holding the realm together I don't know, Richard. You think she's so incentivized to do that anymore? Oh yeah, I think it's. I think it's suddenly become not about like maintaining the peace of Westeros and now pushing back against this. You know, these people that have taken a lot from her, or she sees it. Yeah, you kind of get the sense she's like, you know what? I could rule over Ash and Bone. <laughs> I wish that they had kept the because originally the episode ends with Rhaenyra turning to the camera and saying, "This time it's personal." Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have driven it home. Yeah. I think a little better. I didn't like that that got clipped yeah. out yeah. either. But what are you gonna do? That's it. That's it. That's House of the Dragon season one finale and season one overall. I want to gut check you, Richard. Heading out of the season, how you're feeling about House of the Dragon and the Game of Thrones franchise overall compared to where you were heading in? I headed in very skeptical thinking do we really need this you know especially because we as we talked about you know nine episodes ago like the original series did not end very well to my mind um and as this season went on i got more and more invested it helped to be doing this podcast with you certainly um and i yeah i'm totally in i i think that that they have set the table so well for like not just the excitement of this looming war and all that but also the tragedy of it and i think that's what you know the the show you know, it needed to be that have that kind of thoughtful extra element um, in order to kind of make sense as a Sunday night prestige HBO show. And I think they've accomplished that. Yeah. I mean, I think that the the viewership was obviously huge. Just the the amount of people who tuned in for the premiere and who have hung around throughout the season. So it's just very clear that people have been have been invested and were whether or not they were ready to go back to a Game of Thrones show, were at least willing to check it out because of the size of the thing. It's almost too big to fail. But I do think on the other side of 10 episodes, while it was not uh, without its faults, uh, and I think we talked about a bunch of them here on the podcast, probably missed a ton as well. But I think, you know, by and large, I think that people are, you know, it's John Wick style, right? You keep asking if I'm back. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. You know, I've been getting, uh, you know, messages from friends of mine in my life outside of all of this, uh, who are the most casual of casual fans of these franchises and these types of shows. Uh, and I got one from from one friend, a, 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 like a lifelong friend of mine, who is a big Game of Thrones skeptic, was saying Game of Thrones sucked as early as season four, which was kind of wild to me, um, who said that was awesome, was his take on the finale. Uh, loved it. So I, I think that the, the show has been a, a crowd pleaser in a lot of ways. And if this was sprawling prologue season one, then you do kind of have to wonder, well, what was it setting up? And I think that this final episode, and specifically the way that it ends with the death of Rhaenyra's son, caused by the son of her old best friend, and her in a position to really do something about it, it makes you very nervous for what we'll see in season two. And yet, that wait, however long it's going to be, 
all of a sudden feels all the more painful and long and excruciating. And I don't think anyone really would have predicted that heading into this season if you had been burned by Game of Thrones this final season. So I think that's a pretty big achievement, Richard. I think that's pretty huge. Yes. And now we cast our eyes north and await some Starks. Yes, indeed. All right, so that's going to do it for the House of the Dragon coverage here on Still Watching. We thank you all so much for tuning in each and every week. It's been an utter joy. I have had a blast. Richard, thank you for letting me into the Vanity Fair wheelhouse. I hope I didn't dirty the place up too much, certainly with all of our Survivor <laughs> nonsense throughout the season. But I've had so much fun. It's been so much fun doing this. With thank you. you for doing it. I, I hope we can have you back uh, for something soon. Um but in the immediate future of Still Watching, I will be covering with my colleague Chris Murphy uh, the new season of The White Lotus, another tale of wealth and death and all that stuff, but this mm-hmm. time set in Sicily instead of uh, you know Westeros. So that will be yes. the first episode of that will be um, next Sunday. So stay tuned. You know what? You know what they always say: never mess with a Targaryen when death is on the line. Uh, so I think you'll be hearing that in the Sicily right, exactly. uh, White Lotus. Yeah, yeah. in 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 Italian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, High Italian instead of High Valyrian. I'm excited for White Lotus. I'm really excited for what you're bringing to the podcast coming uh, next week when White Lotus is the new hotness on HBO. So make sure you're still subscribed to the Still Watching feed to make sure that you are not missing out on anything that Richard and Chris are talking about when it comes to the White Lotus season to uh richard where can people find you on the internet anything else you want to play uh i'll be on twitter at uh, rylaws and then on vf.com uh in the coming days i will have a review of the new season of white lotus so look out for that Ooh, i'm looking forward to that um i am at rand howard wherever you can find me uh i will be uh bringing you one last uh house of the dragon article on vf.com where i've been recapping the season all season long an interview with greg yatanis the director of this episode is coming to vf.com next from me so if you want to hear some behind the scenes on how this episode came together uh that is the thing that you want to look out for so make sure you're heading over to vf.com to check all of that out Uh, If you've got feedback for this episode or anything that you want to get in ahead of White Lotus Season 2, definitely reach out stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. That's the email address, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Huge shouts to Dave Gonzalez, who has been with us all season long, making it possible for us to fly on these freaking dragons. They are really hard to rein in, and it would be impossible to do without Dave. So thank you so much to Dave. Thank you so much to all of you out there. We've had a blast and we will see you with more House of the Dragon content whenever season two revs up. And in the meantime, next week, tune in for White Lotus season two. Until then, everybody take care. Bye-bye. 